0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with...
1: Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone.
0: We're recording remotely. We are recording on the Easter holiday weekend. I'm at my in-law's place in an isolated office in the basement. And, uh, you know, it's it's good to be someplace for the Easter weekend. Hope you all have a place to go as well. Anyway, uh, first order of business. I, like you, like Luke, like everyone, have fantastic beasts and where to find them fever well i I actually Mm -hmm.
1: speak for yourself i still have morbius mind you can feel it in the air people cannot
0: stop talking about the blockbuster new film fantastic beasts colon the secrets of dumbledore (laughs) i think that's what it's called that's right folks they put dumbledore's name in the title if you've seen the poster or if you or if you've seen billboards for the movie you'll see that the word dumbledore is much bigger than fantastic beasts as (laughs) if to remind you guys Guys, you remember Harry Potter? You liked that, right? I know you're not too into the whole fantastic beasts, whatever that is. But remember, it's the same universe, guys. You better show up to this one.
1: Believe it or not, I've actually seen, I think, two of the movies in the series. Because sometimes when I get together with our mutual friend, Brandon Hackett, sometimes we watch good movies. Although I feel like we tell ourselves that. And I feel like the ratio of good to bad movies is maybe sort of like you know, four to one with the bad movies winning out. And, uh, you know, bad movies are great because you can also kind of just like talk over them. And also it's always a good moment to just like something that's just in the air, in the culture. You put it on in the background and then that way you've kind of absorbed it, you know, without ever having to go to a theater or pay any money. So, yeah, I, I'm actually sort of broadly familiar with the, well, I shouldn't say I'm familiar. Uh, I'm not up on the lore, but uh, I have seen the two. I have seen the two movies while talking over them.
0: And I, being very heavily invested, as you know, in the free Johnny Depp movement, uh, I'm, I'm deeply invested in this third one. No, I'm just kidding,
1: folks. Wait, so is he in it or not? Or did they cut him from it?
0: He got cut from it because they they cut him. I think the day or maybe two days after he lost that libel lawsuit in Britain. If folks have been following that particular drama, he and he and Amber Heard are on trial again this week. By the way, uh, some. Somewhere in the United States uh, I, I like given how much the world has changed in the last few years how much we've all been through I kind of like that that drama is still you know rock steady happening in the background anyway uh, I've been following this new fantastic beast movie with great interest I'm, I'm not gonna I'm probably not gonna see it folks but it seems like <laughs> a perfect storm of uh, bad things that can befall a piece of IP there's the Johnny Depp issue. Uh, that casting a bit of a pall over the whole who, enterprise. Who was he
1: supposed to play?
0: He was Grindelwald in the second movie, and I say that I say that as if I know who Grindelwald is but he's the perpetrator of crimes.
1: Grindelwald, if I'm not mistaken, and I mean, this, this is one of the things about this, God, I don't know what, to, what the new new Harry Potter trilogy, whatever we call it, the Fantastic Beast series that immediately seemed like a mistake to me when I first started watching, you know, when, I, when I started watching the first movie, um, which is that it's set in sort of the, I guess, early 20th century or something. So that can see, allows them to, I think, cast, Is it Jude Law as Dumbledore? So Dumbledore is now, like, you know, a younger, sexy, sexy Dumbledore. And I think Grindelwald, you know, I could be... I haven't read Harry Potter since I was a teenager, but if I'm not mistaken, and people can correct me, I guess, but isn't Grindelwald the guy that, like... They find out Dumbledore was actually friends with him as a, as when they were kids or something and they were plotting to take over the world. And then he became a dangerous dark wizard, which like, if that's the case, then I don't actually understand how Grindelwald is like back in the 1920s or something. But I guess uh, Dumbledore is supposed to be pretty old. Anyway, does doesn't matter.
0: I don't know any about anything about that except that I know that Grindelwald and Dumbledore were actually more than just friends. This is a revelation that occurs in the new uh, in the new film. Well,
1: let me tell you, well, it's a it's a revelation that occurred after J.K. Rowling wrote the original Harry Potter books as well.
0: Well, there are several lines of dialogue that allude to a relationship that these two characters had, and of course, the studio would like to position this as some like triumph of representation. But the movie's being released in China, shorn of these scenes, a- any reference to their past romantic relationship has been deleted but what's really funny about it is only six seconds of the film have been cut so that's exactly <laughs> as much LGBTQ representation as is in the... Not the most lacerating edit. Speaking of LGBTQ issues and the perfect storm that has befallen this franchise, as we all know, J.K. Rowling in recent years has become the public face of anti-trans activism. She's not just vocal on social media, but she has campaigned against legislation that would make it easier for people to transition. Um, so this is now a big issue that the studio has to navigate the extent to which to keep her involved how much they can alienate her as well as it's an issue for i think many of the fans of the series uh who you know you'll you'll notice i think since 2016 there's been an enormous decline in politics and media people on twitter calling themselves gryffindors and uh saying that we need to channel harry potter energy to get to get Trump out. To
1: be fair, that <laughs> I mean to be fair that's also because Hillary lost.
0: Yes, but I, but I do think that uh, Harry Potter as a political signifier has taken a hit in recent years, as a direct result of J.K. Rowling. Now, there are some people who will say Twitter is not real life. We don't know what effect this has actually had on ordinary moviegoers, but but I think we can sense in the air just a general malaise surrounding the Harry Potter franchise. I,
1: I would I would I would proffer just a friendly amendment to that, which is that while that's also my sense, uh, part of what's responsible for that, it seems to me, is also just the fact that there hasn't been a new Harry Potter book that's, you know, a real book or, you know, is up to the standard that people got used to between books, you know, one to one to eight or however many there were. J.K. Rowling has made a number of kind of attempts to either create a uh, an identity for herself independent of Harry Potter or kind of produce sort of Harry Potter tie-in products. And it doesn't seem like they've really stuck with people even though, of course, you know, uh, a lot of people have bought them. So there was a whole thing where she penned a book that had nothing to do with Harry Potter, a novel that I think was called cat. Acad- Casual vacancy. I
0: remember the huge stacks of it at Indigo. Well,
1: I, I may be getting a title wrong because I always get it confused with uh, Brian Griffin's novel in Family Guy, which has some title like that. Oh, I think that's a passing fancy. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing, either either or. Anyway, uh, you know, she tried to pen that uh, under a different name, I guess, and I don't think it sold very well. And then there was a big reveal that it was J.K. Rowling. But I I, I never hear anyone talk about that book. And then there have been a number of these kind of tie-ins, right? There was the Fantastic Beasts and Where to find them book which is a book that I think it's like a textbook that they have at Hogwarts in the series so that that came out there was the tales of beetle the bard which of course appears in the final Harry Potter novel um, and then there was the my favorite one, which was the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which was sort of branded as like this is a new Harry Potter book and it's coming out. It's an original Harry Potter adventure. And so all these poor all these poor young readers went to buy it. And wouldn't you know it? It's the text of a play. It's not a book that you can read. Ron and Hermione and Harry and the, and the and the gang are not having are not out having new adventures. I'm sorry.
0: Well, we all know the story that J.K. Rowling began writing her novel on napkins, basically, and then it was a real rags to riches story. And now she's back to writing things on napkins and publishing them again. But everything you said brings me to my last point, which is the rotting of this piece of intellectual property. I was reading an interesting article in Variety this week. Two or three days before the movie opened, Variety had an article about how the top brass at Warner Media are pushing the brakes a little bit on the Fantastic Beasts franchise because of all the air of doom around it, because of declining ticket sales, because of bad projections for the box office for this new one. But they're, they're faced with a huge dilemma because Warner Media has two main IP properties right now, Harry Potter and DC Comics. And so what do you do when one of your two tent poles <laughs> has not had anything new and cuz this is this is an industry okay they've got Harry Potter lands they've got theme parks all over the world. <laughs> They've got a beast to feed. And uh, people are not loving.
1: <laughs> all of a sudden, one of your two sons, he's not getting good grades. He's not practicing his piano. You know, the other one's doing fine. He's pulling straight A's. He's captain of the soccer team. But all, you know, one of them seems to be falling behind, and, and you're not sure what to do.
0: So I'll be interested to see, I won't be that interested, but I'll be slightly <laughs> interested to see what, what Warner Media does with this franchise. Will they pull a Disney where they give J.K. Rowling $5 billion for just the whole kit and caboodle of the franchise, and then they then they put Harry to work again. They yeah, start... they're like
1: they're like give give this to us. Let us detach you forever from the brand, and then let us just make it as woke as the fans like want it to be,
0: or as not woke as the fans want it to be. Like <laughs> let's let's put it on an assembly line. Let's chain this assembly line to the charts and graphs that are telling us exactly what the fans <laughs> want at this particular moment, like the Star Wars series right now.
1: Yeah, where it's where where they're like these little token gestures towards representation or not even just representation just towards like particular plot lines and characters and ideas that are introduced as if they're very important and then when the focus groups you know submit their feedback oh look at that in the next movie that character that was a main character in the previous movie nowhere to be found folks
0: I think that actually is happening with this new Fantastic Beasts movie so this is just a little preview of what's going to happen going forward but yeah they got to get Harry back they got to get Hermione back they got to <laughs> get that redheaded kid whatever the hell his name is. it's been a while since i've spent any time with this series (laughs) then uh, they ought to make some more canonical adventures where they're doing where they're doing stuff and then in between those they'll have like nearly headless nick origins and uh (laughs) dobby the house elf the beginning i mean you you uh,
1: joke but that is 100 percent going to happen although now that you're laying out these scenarios there's a third possibility that occurs to me which is of course ben shapiro and the daily wire are starting their own film company or something to rival disney so you know, maybe they could buy Harry Potter and use it to bequeath, you know, good morals to uh to the global youth.
0: Yeah, they'll have their rival franchise called like Bobby Hollingsworth and the Chamber of uh, whatever, whatever, and it'll all be about uh, how how the Mudbloods are bad, how the Mudbloods, how the Mudbloods are a deviation from the natural order of things.
1: Yeah, Salazar Slytherin did nothing wrong. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where this fits in, but I saw uh, someone make an observation recently that I think I think is a good one which is that the three actors who kind of all got their starts through the Harry Potter films so you know Daniel Radcliffe uh, Rupert Grint and uh Emma Watson, all three of them absolutely teed up, you know, starting their careers in this series to just become, you know, uh, really fucked up uh, adults with all kinds of weird issues, you know, unable to escape, you know, the the clutches of this series, this franchise, this leviathan piece of intellectual property. And yet, unlike uh, lots of other child stars, all three of them seem pretty well adjusted. I mean, obviously, two of them have been more successful in their uh, careers than one of them, you know, which is, which is also funny given. The the characters they were playing you know ron weasley always the bridesmaid and it seems like the same thing for for rupert grint as well i don't know how many people saw that movie driving lessons that he was in uh i didn't but anyway they all seem uh, they all seem very well adjusted i'm not building up to any point with this but uh, i think that's uh that's commendable i'm pro the harry potter kids i think they've uh, i think they've done well for themselves i think they've
0: all done a good job navigating the minefields that the wretched creator of this series has laid for them
1: well, i'll tell you an example i saw uh just the other week someone tried to ask Daniel Radcliffe like for his take on the Will Smith, you know, <laughs> slapping incident. And his response was just somebody to the effect of, Why are we talking about this? This is stupid. Like let's talk about something else. And I just say good for him. He's
0: right. I wish I had followed his advice. Folks <laughs> we do have some politics on this episode this is a bit of a hard politics episode we are going to once again be mining luke's encyclopedic knowledge of canadian politics on this episode because we are talking about a very interesting documentary also one of the more obscure documentaries that we've watched a 1969 film that was made for canada's public broadcaster the cbc called what's left
2: democratic socialism has fallen on evil times uh... It's lost its um, vitality, uh, its vital force. Uh, It's no longer growing. Uh, It's in a crisis period, ideologically. We are the only party today, the only party today, that offers a real program for the future. Tory misfits have moved into the NDP and unfortunately have wormed away into the top echelon. Well. Those people are destroying the NDP. The orientation uh, of the NDP is not based on uh, the need of uh, the French Canadian people. They just aren't in the the mainstream of the world. They no longer even bother to speak about socialism, and in those sections where they do speak about socialism, they substitute what I think are socialist slogans uh, for a socialist analysis and a socialist strategy.
0: This film is a survey of the Canadian left circa 1969, particularly the state of the NDP, the New Democratic Party, which to this day is Canada's social democratic political party. The film chronicles the history of left politics in Canada, and it captures the left in a state of, I think, uncertainty, if not confusion, in 1969, with a number of different factions in the left and the NDP pulling in different directions. I'm interested uh, in hearing what Luke thinks about this as somebody who's been very immersed in the 50 years that have happened since, because I sense that this push-pull that we're seeing in this film has continued in the party in some form pretty much until the present day. Uh, How did you find out about this movie? What made you want to talk about it?
1: I found out about it quite by chance. I was looking for a less interesting documentary that was made by CPAC a few years ago, which is not to be confused with the Conservative Political Action Conference. CPAC is sort of Canada's C span. It's where I used to watch Question Period and and things like that. You know, they stream stuff from Parliament, but they also do original programming. And uh, I guess in 2012, something like that, uh, they made a documentary called NDP Party at a Crossroads, which I think aired the night of the 2012 uh, NDP Leadership Convention where Thomas Mulcair was elected leader. Uh, I was at that convention. I remember watching it shortly after. I don't even really remember why I was looking for that documentary, but I couldn't find it. So I put out a call on Twitter and I got a a few replies. I can't remember which of them It was who recommended it. But uh, two of the people who replied were uh, Matthew Green, who's a a great New Democratic uh, MP, who I know a little bit from Hamilton, a great socialist MP. Uh, And then Avi Lewis, who was a candidate who, in fact, you heard me interview on the on the show a few months back, uh, was a candidate in the recent election as the son of uh, Stephen Lewis, who briefly appears in this documentary one of them recommended this film, and uh, we'll include the link. Somebody could probably do a good deed by uh, actually downloading the footage, because uh, this was some. This is somehow at an unlisted YouTube link, meaning you can only find it if you actually have the URL. So I have no idea who uploaded it, or why, or why it's unlisted, but I've now seen it twice. Uh, it's incredibly interesting. It's a really important historical document. There's so many things that uh, appear in it that I think are interesting and, uh, and are worth discussing. There are also so many characters who are so ...sort of uh, important figures uh, in the history of the Canadian left, many of whom are sort of uh, forgotten... Some of whom you would never know about unless you've studied left history in Canada or or political science. Something else that uh, something else I like about the movie is that there are a few people uh, who appear in it who I've come to know. Although of course they're much much older now. This being a piece of TV from uh, from the late 1960s, I think it's 12 days ahead of the 1969 uh, NDP convention in Winnipeg.
0: The film begins with a recounting of the Winnipeg General Strike in 1919, and in recounting this historical incident, it draws an unfavorable comparison between the state of the left then and now, as in 1969. It points that sympathy strikes popped up in nearly every major Canadian city. Soldiers mounted sympathy parades, causing the government to pass a law forbidding the parades. A new special police force was formed in Winnipeg when it became clear that most active-duty police were sympathetic to the strike. An amendment was even passed in the Immigrant Act that specified that immigrants could be deported without trial. Uh, This was knowing that many of the strike organizers were immigrants themselves. You can see the enormous popular support across the country for the Winnipeg General Strike, as well as the increasingly draconian and unpopular measures that the federal and provincial governments had to introduce to keep the situation under control. The left was fairly robust in Canada in the 20s and 30s as well, during periods of massive unemployment. And then the turning point comes after the Second World War. There's a massive post-war economic boom. People are able to cash out their war bonds, their savings bonds. There's a huge new demand for consumer goods that were not available during the war. There's a boom in jobs, there is a unparalleled prosperity, and uh, many of the people in the documentary tell us that during periods of unparalleled prosperity, it's not a great time for the radical left to get its message out. There's a political scientist in the film, Professor Gad Horowitz, who... Theorizes that after the Second World War, we saw the liberalization of socialism both in Canada and abroad. He attributes this to the Cold War, among other factors. The Cold War very much split people in two. And he points to the main signs of liberalization being a forgetting of early doctrines around public ownership. Now, at the same time, we're being told that appetite for radical left politics is at an all time low. There's this emerging class of new left activists, and it's largely student-led, and they're becoming they're becoming increasingly radical in their demands. And there's much disagreement in the NDP brain trust on how to deal with them, on which of their demands to take seriously, on what strategy to take the party going forward.
1: Yeah, so there's there's so much to talk about here, and there's so many interesting issues raised by the film, and it does kind of work as Will's survey of kind of the you know, history of the you know 20s and 30s just now indicates. I mean, it. Does- it does also kind of work as as a little truncated survey of sort of the evolution of the left up, up to that point, up, up to the 1960s. And yeah, I mean, as you were saying... The period of the Great Depression in particular, the the decade following the Winnipeg General Strike, um, things were were incredibly desperate during those times. And you know, among other things, this contributed to the creation of the CCF, which was the precursor to the NDP. So this was the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which was formed in the 1930s after a conference in Calgary, and then later had a founding manifesto, I guess a year later, called the Regina Manifesto. So the idea of the CCF was a federation between, you know, farm, labor, and so socialists, those were kind of the the founding partners. And uh, the famous line in the CCF's uh, Regina Manifesto is the final line, which reads, no CCF government will rest content until it has eradicated capitalism and put into operation the full program of socialized planning, which will lead to the establishment in Canada of the cooperative commonwealth. So, you know, the CCF, like a lot of kind of socialist formations in the early 30s, was really a response to, you know, many things, but the Great Depression uh, in a big way. One of the things the Great Depression did, not just for the left, but I mean, even to some extent for other parts of the political spectrum as well, is it made people recognize uh, and kind of perceive the capitalist system as in many ways kind of inefficient. The idea of just sort of letting the market do its thing, you know, that was pretty indefensible, you know, in the wake of all of this, you know, high unemployment. I mean, I can't remember who it is in the film is, is talking about unemployment in the 30s, But, you know, we're not talking about people being unemployed for a few months at a time. We're often talking about double-digit unemployment that's lasting for years. And, of course, in the 30s, there's no social safety net at all, right? There's only a kind of patchwork welfare state, which is often functionally the people that are doing the work. It's not really even the state as such. In many cases, it's churches and private charities and things like that. So these are very desperate times, and they create an appetite for a very different kind of economic system. And public ownership becomes absolutely central to this. I mean, the the idea was that if you eliminate the capitalist system entirely by, you know, seizing the means of production effectively, having some kind of collective ownership of the economy at the time, the idea was that the state would be the kind of uh, mechanism for that ownership. The idea was you could, you could prevent this from happening ever again. You could prevent something like the Great Depression from happening, but also you could build a a very different kind of economy which would have very different social and, and economic outcomes. So the CCF is formed in the 1930s and, uh, it has some early successes. You know, there are only in the 30s kind of six or seven CCF MPs that are elected, including a young Tommy Douglas who appears in the film. Amusingly, he, his kind of role in this movie is he's one of the the voices of the NDP establishment, which is another thing that's funny in this film is that these figures who would be far to the left of you know uh, most most politics today anyway, uh, David Lewis, Tommy Douglas, um, others like that are in this film. Their role is to kind of be the the older figures who who represent the sort of Labour NDP establishment, who are very skeptical about the new left and, and what the young radicals in the party are saying.
0: Tommy Douglas, by the way, for listeners who aren't Canadian, is the widely acknowledged father of Canada's universal health care system, uh, voted the greatest Canadian of all time in a CBC poll.
1: That's right. A guy who was spied on by the RCMP in his lifetime, and has sort of been grandfathered into kind of the national mythos, such that he's sort of seen as a as an apolitical figure. But so Douglas was one of these early successes. The CCF had this small federal caucus, but then you know they started winning. I mean, they won this election in Saskatchewan in 1945. They smashed the Liberals, won almost every seat in the Saskatchewan legislature, and uh, they began to build in this tiny, you know, agrarian province without a lot of money and wealth at its disposal you know, this much bigger kind of welfare state. They actually did a lot of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily associate with uh, socialism as such, but which was very, very important uh, to their popular success. They were responsible for building a lot of basic infrastructure. One of my favorite uh, stories of the early CCF years in Saskatchewan is there'd be this ritual of people setting their outhouses on fire because people hadn't had proper plumbing. And one of the things the CCF government did was just fix those kinds of basic problems with, uh, with infrastructure by using the power of the state to, uh, to do so. Anyway, we don't need to run through the whole history, but in 1945, it looked like the CCF might actually form a federal government, um, and their strategists thought they might win as many as 100 seats, and then as as Douglas recounts in the film, every household in Canada got a slick-looking magazine called Social Suicide, which was about how you shouldn't vote for the CCF, and it was full of all these, uh, you know, you could fill out a survey that came with it that asked you these questions, you know, for a prize, where it was stuff like, would you like your daughter to be sold into Bolshevik bondage, you know, (laughs) yes, no, you know, whatever, strongly agree, strongly disagree, whatever, there are a whole bunch of these sort of leading questions. So uh, that blunted the rise of the CCF. Um, They were obviously not successful. We did not have a sort of Labour 1945 style CCF landslide in Canada. But the early success of the CCF is in many ways still responsible for the welfare state, not only because CCF formed governments at the provincial level and built welfare state institutions, but also because of the the threat of the CCF forced the Liberal government and Mackenzie King in particular to implement a whole bunch of kind of welfare state programs in the decades following the Second World War, not just King, but other liberals as well. Anyways, that's all a very truncated history of the decades leading up to the 1960s. But what happened in the 1960s, I think will be more familiar to our American listeners in particular, because, you know, like in the United States, Canada had its own uh, new left, which was very much shaped by things like the Vietnam War. In some ways, I think this was a generation that came out of both post-war prosperity, but also sort of post-war social democracy to some extent. You had all these young people who perhaps had come from families where you know no one in their family had been to university. They're going to university they're learning and they're starting to ask, you know, serious questions about the society around them. I think given what had come before in kind of the 1930s and the war years, there was a sort of shock of affluence that was going on at the time as well. And people were starting to ask questions about that too. I mean, what does it mean to have a society that's so driven by a consumption economy uh, where everything is so commercialized? And so all of these issues are really coming to a head in the NDP, uh, particularly around this question of public ownership. The NDP I should, I should add, was formed in 1961 when the CCF merged with the Canadian Labour Congress, the idea being to create you know a sort of formal Labour Party. So not just a party that was ideologically sympathetic to Labour, but one that was affiliated with, uh, with organised Labour as well. And Tommy Douglas was, uh, was the first leader, followed by uh, David Lewis. Now, if you're familiar with the new left in the United States, I mean, you can picture something uh, in some ways quite similar here, although it's inflected the new left with some very Canadian particularities. Um, one of the big ones, and one which I think is often doesn't scan for people uh, outside of Canada, and honestly, even some people inside Canada as well, is that nationalism is a really big part of this, and that undergirds a lot of the push for public ownership as well. It's not just public ownership for public ownership's sake, it's also Canadian ownership of the Canadian economy. Because the left in a big way was responding to increasing uh, American ownership of the Canadian economy. Uh, It was responding to the fact that uh, Canada was and frankly, uh, still is an industrial economy where much of the industry is extractive, you know, we extract raw materials, and we often export them for if we're talking about oil, you know, it's often refined elsewhere. A lot of these industries, you know, there was a kind of growing American influence in them, etc. So all of this concerned, you know, young radicals who are obviously see very critical of the American Empire and, you know, what it was doing around the world, particularly in Southeast Asia. The documentary highlights these kind of uh, emerging divisions between the new left radicals in the party and the sort of uh, old guard. And these are very interesting, because to a certain extent, they really are just generational. And you see a version of, uh, of stuff like this everywhere. And, and to some extent, there's a version of it, you know, every few decades. But they are, to, they are to some extent, ideological as well. And I'm actually sympathetic to uh, things that people on both sides of this uh, divide say
0: Well, we can talk about some of the characters who appear in the film. Probably the most conservative member of the Old Guard is Manitoba Premier Ed Schreier, who, it's noted, is the leader of the party's only reigning NDP government at the time.
2: There is no way that a political party can uh, speak realistically about running the affairs of government if if that party has to subscribe to the kind of undisciplined... uh, course of action that is proposed by some of the New Left. Uh, what I'm saying, in, in effect, is that, that uh, all that I've read and, and heard about uh, proposals of the New Left, much, much of what they have to say in their analysis is, is, is quite accurate, but what they propose as uh, courses of solution, in many cases, wildly impractical. There is a group, I don't know how large they are, who advocate, uh, so I understand them are advocating the complete cessation of uh, acceptance of foreign capital investment in Canada, Uh, complete uh, cessation of it immediately. But immediately, I mean, well, you know, this is impractical, just not possible.
0: He advocates a lot for incremental reform. He says revolutionary change is never lasting without oppression. He wants change that will last, and he points to one group, one unnamed group, that is allegedly calling for a complete and immediate cessation of all foreign capital in Canada. And he says this is the example of the sort of extreme pie-in-the-sky policy idea that is not only impossible, but represents the sort of rhetoric that would turn off potential voters. Hearing him talk, I'm curious where do you think he stands politically compared to, say, a left leader in Canada right now? Like would you say that this guy is actually further left than than you would think based on what we see in the film, or is he as conservative as he appears? And what do you find sympathetic about him, if anything?
1: I mean he, Ed Schreier, I think, is the figure I'm I'm least sympathetic to, not because I even real I don't really know much about Ed Schreier's government in Manitoba, and I'm sure That uh, yeah, as you alluded to, there's probably a sense in which he had you know very basic social democratic commitments that would put him to the left of um, I'm sure the NDP in Manitoba today. But his attitude is one that you do encounter in social democratic parties. I mean, one thing I like about this documentary is it really shows the competing souls of a social democratic party, you know, particularly after the Second World War. Social democracy after the Second World War does enjoy a lot of successes, like we were like we were saying before. I mean, in Canada, the CCF doesn't form a national government, but it does form some provincial governments, and it, it wins a lot of uh, important concessions uh, around the welfare state in particular. And one of the things that's born of this is, you know, quite naturally, but also this post Poses some challenges is you get a professionalization of politics, you get labor leaders and, and party staffers who are who are middle class, right? You know, this is not the 1930s anymore. Uh, there's a welfare state, there's a climate of affluence. But one of the things that this really can breed, and you see it listening to Ed Schreier, is this sort of uh, what, what I think in retrospect looks like complacency. I mean, it's only 10 years after this film was made that you really have the, the beginnings of the undoing of this whole kind of uh, Keynesian you know welfare state settlement that he's defending. So someone like Ed Schreier, I think, represents a, a sort of technocratic and managerial attitude that you do still find in one faction of the NDP. Uh, and it's, it's the one I'm least sympathetic to. But there are other things that are, that are said in this that I have a little more sympathy for. So, for example, when Tommy Douglas is talking about public ownership, and he talks about how it can sometimes be a, a clumsy tool.
2: Nationalization uh, can be a very clumsy tool in some instances. It can be, lead to bureaucracy if you control the monetary policy, the fiscal policy. And the investment policy doesn't make much difference who has a title deed to the industry. And uh, consequently, in many countries, and the Scandinavian countries are the best example, they have demonstrated that without mass nationalization, it is possible to have a social society. A Good example is that uh, in countries like Portugal and Spain, you've got more public ownership than you have in Sweden. Uh, We have probably more public ownership in Canada than they have in Sweden. But Sweden has a socialist society.
1: And it doesn't necessarily matter if you control the monetary policy, the investment policy, that kind of thing. I mean... There is something to that. And it's important to note that not all the people uh, at this time who were dismissive of public ownership as a panacea were motivated by a technocratic streak. Exactly. I mean, a lot of this did also come out of the experience of of the USSR, where, you know, it turned out that just, you know, having the state control, you know, much of the economy or kind of the whole economy, sort of eradicating capitalism in that sense, it wasn't a silver bullet for dealing with a lot of big problems. So that created a more sort of nuanced perspective around what nationalization could do.
0: Another prominent character in the movie is a rising young left star named Ed Broadbent who uh, (laughs) advocates less for the expansion of pensions and Medicare and advocates more for I wouldn't necessarily call it public ownership but in more worker decision-making authority.
2: Traditionally in our kind of free enterprise and quotes economy uh, these rights have belonged to management. And legal cases that are still before the courts every day, the judgments come down in arbitration matters, which uh, recognize the so-called prerogatives of management. Now, what are these? These are uh, the right to decide the allocation of capital, the right to decide the price of a product, the right to decide what the product will be, uh, the right to decide One technological change should be introduced in Enterprise.
0: Where would you put him on the spectrum here?
1: Yeah, so there are a few scenes in this which are are really special uh, because they capture what appears to be at least one early meeting of uh, this group known as the Waffle which became sort of the dominant expression of the New Left in Canada, this kind of New Left animated by ideas of Canadian nationalism and, and Canadian ownership of the Canadian economy, that sort of thing. There's one scene where it, it appears to be uh, the famous moment when they're drafting the uh, Manifesto for an Independent Socialist Canada, which was the, uh, the founding Manifesto of the Waffle. I mean, it, it can't actually be... I can't imagine they actually had cameras in there when that happened, but I, perhaps I can show the clip to Ed and see if he remembers... But the idea here was uh, more nuanced than simply just you know having the state control things. Uh, the phrase that people were using, which I think was apt, was industrial democracy, and this is an idea that Tony Benn also who we've talked about on the show before, was very interested in as well. So not simply not having the state uh, own things necessarily, although you know I think the view was still that you know some things had to be owned by the state, but having you know more worker-owned firms and things like that, changing the way that we conceive of the firm in general. So there were ideas floating around at the time that involved changing labor law such that you know in addition to bargaining for you know wages working conditions things like that unions would also be able to bargain for rights of management as well so you would have workers you know gradually taking control of firms and things like that i think those ideas are the most interesting the most interesting ideas that came out of this period and are probably still worth considering uh, in a big way today um, but so you see you see a number of people in these Scenes kind of in the last third of the movie, Uh, you see a young James Laxer who ran a few years later against uh, against David Lewis. Ed also ran in that contest. Although of course he was elected leader, uh, Ed was in uh, I guess 1975. But so Laxer became sort of the voice of the waffle. Uh, he was uh, you know a whip smart, I think 29 year old. Um, so he's even younger in in this documentary. It's kind of 29 year old face of the new left in Canada. I think he got something like 30 percent or something like that. Although Lewis did win pretty convincingly a few years later. Another guy who was in the room for the drafting of this manifesto, this famous manifesto, was uh, Jerry Kaplan. He's a Guy, I know a bit as well, and he doesn't speak in the film, but I think I caught a glimpse of him uh, somewhere in the room. There's a young Saigonic, uh, one of the founders of Canadian Dimension, uh, who's still around. Gad Horowitz, who you mentioned, I should say, is a fellow who I've interacted with online as well, and he, uh, he wrote a really important book called Canadian Labor and Politics, which uh, was a foundation in many ways for uh, a lot of the political science work I did in university as well. So he's someone I'm pretty familiar with. But of course, the person I know best, uh, and we've met mentioned him already is ed and and there's a and in the first scene he appears there's a moment that i think is so emblematically him where they're where they're drafting this manifesto and he's trying to push for clarity on what they mean by key industries because the manifesto is talking about you know public ownership of key industries and he's saying something to the effect of, well we were talking to that economist and i th- and as a non-economist i thought he raised some pretty good questions <laughs> um, about what you know what we mean by key industries so maybe we should push those questions maybe we should be honest with the convention push those questions down the road and you know say that we're going to we're going to put in the work and, and figure out what that means which is very emblematically, uh, Ed is someone who both came out of academia and has a, a streak of honesty to him and, and kind of sincerity, which I think has been pretty rare in politics. And that hesitancy around, you know, what they meant by key industries is, is where this label, the waffle, came from. Uh, the joke was that if they're going to waffle on the question of public ownership, they might as well waffle to the left. Now, the waffle is something that deserves its own treatment. It was a, a very influential for a brief period in Canada. You know, it was at one point able to command sort of a third of delegates at, at one of the NDP conventions. It fell apart pretty quickly, was later purged from the Ontario wing of the NDP when Stephen Lewis was leader. There are wildly competing accounts of what it was like. Uh, you can read, for example, the late Leo Panitch talking about it as a, a really important sort of a road not taken uh, for the Canadian left. You can also read histories of it where, you know, sort of by the early Early nineteen seventies, after kind of its initial uh, phase, it was sort of taken over by Trotskyists, who just sort of showed up at constituency meetings and, and shouted at people. Regardless of where you come down, the Waffle is a very interesting and, and important sort of uh, moment in Canadian left history and Canadian left politics. One thing that is notable is that a lot of the people that were in this room for the founding of the Waffle or, or for the drafting of its manifesto, at any rate, uh, ended up leaving uh, in the next few years. So Jerry Kaplan, who I mentioned, I believe it was the manifesto was drafted in his living room. uh, And he later sided with the uh, the people who wanted the waffle gone from the NDP. I know Ed uh, started to feel less comfortable with some of the rhetoric around the waffle. Uh, There was a feeling, you know, and this is another thing you hear about the waffle, that um, and I suppose uh, it's a criticism that is leveled against the new left in general. Um, there was a feeling that there was a sort of academic language, a sort of jargony language that was associated with some of this stuff, that it was too campus based to have a broad appeal, and that there were ways to make the same political demands, uh, but kind of uh, strip them of some of this, uh, you know, some of this style of rhetoric. Ed represented uh, the constituency of Oshawa Whitby, which had a huge, uh, you know, General Motors uh, presence. And I know he felt that the rhetoric of this time that was specifically about sort of American corporations and stuff wasn't really going to go over it very well in a community where so much of the economy and so many of the jobs were connected to, uh, you know, this unionized work at General Motors. Anyway, the waffle is too big a subject to treat here. It's something i will have to uh, have to get into a little more in a future discussion. It's something I'm actually uh, hoping to write about as well. It's some point once i've had uh, had the opportunity to do a little more research
2: the founding convention of the new democratic party a marriage between trade unions and the ccf which will it's believed made its first test of strength sometime in 1962 what Canada needs is a planned economy which will stimulate economic growth
0: moving ahead to the present day i hear a lot on what would broadly be called the left about redistribution and i hear a lot about identitarian issues i don't hear a lot anymore about public ownership so i was a little surprised how much the subject dominated discussion in this documentary from 1969 i guess i'm curious from your perspective is it possible is it realistic is it viable for that to make a comeback as an issue and also just on a separate note I was also interested in all of the concern in this documentary about the sort of temperature of the rhetoric among the activists, (laughs) because in Canada right now, Canada is quite different from, I think, the United States and maybe even the United Kingdom, where I don't feel that temperature. I don't feel a lot of fiery rhetoric, either among activists or in the political class. Uh, And I I think Canada could stand to have a little bit more of it. It could stand to have a little bit more (laughs) of that populist energy. And I'm I'm not quite sure why it doesn't have that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on these issues?
1: Well, yeah, I mean that last question is a is a big one, and I don't I don't think I really have an answer. I mean, I don't have an answer that's not an unsatisfactory sort of cultural explanation, like, oh, well, Cana-, you know, Canada, it's Canada, so Canadians are we're polite meek and diffident, yeah. yeah, and we're polite, yeah. Although, honestly, there probably is something to that. I think if somebody
0: wanted to run against landlords, you could get some of that fiery populist energy.
1: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and it it is the case that you know class politics. Used to have more of a, you know, used to have more of a presence in Canada. Although in in uh, kind of recent years, the federal NDP anyway has moved back closer to a kind of uh, broadly social democratic agenda in many areas, uh, which is encouraging. Although it's it, yeah, it's it's not exactly uh, attached to this more militant style of of class rhetoric, and it doesn't it doesn't come off in the way that you know something like uh, the the Sanders campaign does. I agree about that. As for the public ownership question, I mean, roughly 20 years after this documentary was the 1988 federal election, which was largely fought over this question of free trade, which the conservatives had, you know, they would negotiated this free trade deal with the United States. You know, the NDP was obviously against it. The liberals decided to be against it, you know, right before the election happened, or or perhaps it was during the election, I can't remember. But the Tories won the election, and you know, the liberals were the main beneficiaries of the anti-free trade vote. Although when they formed government five years later, not only did they not cancel the Free trade agreement that they'd said was going to lead to you know cultural destruction of Canada. Uh, they expanded it with NAFTA to include Mexico as well. '88 was in many ways sort of the last stand of that type of Canadian nationalism. I mean, it's still a sort of a, has a sort of ambient influence, but I think it's uh, much more amorphous than it was. It's not really tied in in the same way to ideas about how Canada needs to be owned by Canadians and that sort of thing. And of course, because of neoliberalism, just the idea of Public ownership has been more broadly discredited, at least in the in the political mainstream. It, it is hard to see, you know, the ideas around public ownership that were present in, say, the 1950s coming back uh, in a big way. Although a lot of those had to do with the state actually owning, sort of, you know, coal and, and steel and things like that. Sometimes owning industries which operated at a loss. I do think, you know, you saw in, in Britain and you saw uh even with to some extent with the Bernie campaign as well, these ideas around sort of worker ownership, industrial democracy coming back. I'm personally more interested in that thrust of uh, collective or public ownership, if you want to call it that, than I am in the idea of the state owning things. Although I do think we could stand to have a few more crown corporations in Canada, things like that around, you know, we like we should have a nationalized bus service, for example, right? Greyhound Canada went under. i, I believe after getting uh, quite a few subsidies from the federal government offering terrible service to people it's just not profitable right because Canada is such a big country and because so many of the people that are using intercity bus uh, service like Greyhound these are not rich people who are you know who are taking the bus but you know it's Canada's a big country people need to get around they need to Mm -hmm. see their families it needs to be possible to go from Regina to Winnipeg for you know $15 or whatever Um, and it's not. So that kind of public ownership, you know, a national transit authority, things like that, I'm broadly sympathetic there. And I guess to put a period on the whole discussion, I've also never really been able to get over the, the challenge that was put on the table by some of the radicals that appear in this documentary. Nationalism is something that has a, understandably, and in many ways, for good reasons, a sort of poor reputation on the on the left. It's associated to a lot of reactionary impulses for people. But it strikes me that, you know, if there ever is some kind of big socialist moment in Canada, it's going to probably have to channel itself, or at least I can't imagine a, an alternate uh, version of it, of this. Uh, it's probably going to have to channel itself through some kind of, you know, Canadian nationalist idiom, because nationalism is a really potent force in Canada, even to this And when I say nationalism, in a big way, what I'm talking about is just the idea that Canada can be a society that is independent from the United States and which pursues a more egalitarian kind of political economy. So I I don't know what that would look like. It's a question that still preoccupies me quite a lot. But because Canada is, you know, a relatively small society next to, you know, this big uh, political, economic, and cultural behemoth, the United States, I feel like in some ways there's no getting over the fact uh, that to be Canadian is to some extent necessarily to distinguish yourself from the United States. And so I feel like in some ways we actually haven't moved beyond a lot of the questions and the conflicts that appear in this documentary in which are being raised by the young radicals who appear... I also think uh, just social democratic parties by their very nature uh, are always going to have these kinds of tensions and that you can't really get rid of them. You're always going to have these generational tensions. You're going to have tensions born of the fact that you're trying to create something that is simultaneously a popular movement with a rank and file element, ties to organized labor, etc., but which is also a parliamentary formation and is going to have a caucus, is going to, you know, in some cases form governments and things like that. You're always going to have these tensions tensions and i think at their best they can be constructive having said that i agree with you Uh, bring back some of the fiery populism i think uh, we could use a dose of that right about now